want to know that we are sending our children out as role models of a democracy who therefore know the importance of speaking and telling truth, the importance of understanding when you are a leader, you must know history. And by the way, be really clear, be really clear. All the folks that we would go out and send our children to go and meet around the world are clear about our history. And we're going to send our own children out to not know what it is? So when I think about what is happening then here in Florida, I am deeply concerned. Because let's be clear, I do believe this is not only about the state of Florida. There is a national agenda afoot. And what is happening here in Florida? Extremists, so-called leaders, for months have dared to ban books. Book bans in this year of our Lord, 2023. Extremists here in Florida. Pass a law, don't say gay. Trying to instill fear in our teachers that they should not live their full life and love who they love. And now, on top of all of that, they want to replace history with lies. <laughs> Middle school students in Florida to be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. <laughs> High schoolers may be taught that victims of violence, of massacres, were also perpetrators. I said it yesterday. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us. And we will not have it. And we will not have it. You just heard an excerpt from Vice President Kamala Harris's response to the new standards for teaching African American history in Florida. Released by that state's Department of Education on Thursday, July 20th, the standards, as New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie put it, return Florida students to an older, tendentious approach that either de-emphasized or ignored outright the basic injustice of human bondage in favor of a gloss that placed a more pleasant sheen on an otherwise horrific institution. So on July 21st, Harris jettisoned her plans and instead headed to Jacksonville, a historically black city in northeastern Florida. There, she delivered a blistering response to extremist Republicans who have systematically created a political football out of Florida's public education system. Florida had already been in the spotlight for demanding revisions to a new African American Studies Advanced Placement course, changes that would affect education across the whole nation. As Governor Ron DeSantis, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, charged, the course promoted a political agenda, not factual knowledge. 
More importantly, it violated new Florida education laws designed to purge publicly funded classrooms of conversations that might lead students to think about sexuality or racism, or see American history in anything but a positive light. These laws also make it illegal to teach the history of white supremacy in Florida, a history not accessible in libraries because those books, along with books about queer people, have mostly been removed from school and public libraries. This empty curriculum also obscures the historical conditions that have produced social inequality across lines of class, race, and gender in the United States. But the Florida standards for teaching African American history went a step further, filling a space that ought to be devoted to fact and truth with lies and evasions. For example, they discuss the institution of slavery, but not who was responsible for it, that it was physically and psychologically brutal, and that it was followed by a century of disenfranchisement that was systematically enforced by white violence. Instead, the curriculum features entrepreneurship and independence, conservative values that were certainly denied to African Americans in bondage, and often in freedom as well. In perhaps the most well-publicized lie, according to the standards, enslaved people learned skills during their captivity that they could use to take care of their families after emancipation. When pressed as to which African American lives would be featured, Florida bureaucrats responded with the names of people many of whom had never been enslaved at all. In other words, slavery was beneficial to black people? White people made the best of a bad situation by encouraging and training the people they held in bondage? No. As Bowie points out in his essay, neither of these are new lies. They were promulgated in children's books and history texts into the 1960s and beyond. Florida's standards are a zombie curriculum grimly kept alive by organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the white supremacist website V-Dare. But for generations after emancipation, these lies were also spread in scholarship, fiction, and popular culture, often accepted by white Americans beyond the South as white Southerners, often women, presented themselves as experts on black life. For example, in the classic 1939 film made from Margaret Mitchell's novel, Gone with the Wind, plantations are presented only as places of grace and beauty. Enslaved black people refuse freedom and instead choose to devote themselves to serving and even rescuing the white family that had held them captive. It took decades of research and publishing, beginning with black scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois, Carter Woodson, Anna Julia Cooper, and John Hope Franklin to expose the true history of America's racial past. It is one that might rightly inspire sorrow and shame in young white students today, and that is expressly against the law in Florida. But here's the other history the standards don't tell that determined Southern white women have also played an important role in fighting white supremacy in the United States. They have a proud tradition of using their status as experts on the South to fighting the lies that racist politicians tell and to ending anti-black violence. In the absence of any federal or state action, in 1930, Texas suffragist Jesse Daniel Ames launched the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching to end political and social terrorism, as well as the false narrative that white women wanted protection from black men. Novelist Lillian Smith followed suit with her novel Strange Fruit in 1944. 
Southern white women like Dorothy Tilly risked their lives alongside black activists and students from outside the region in the black civil rights movement. And contemporary historians raised and educated in the South, like Karen L. Cox, have been leading voices in dismantling the fuzzy, feel-good, fake history that Confederate monuments preserve. This is why I wanted to bring Jacqueline Dowd Hall, Julia Cherry Spruill Professor Emerita at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the founding director of that university's Southern Oral History Project, to our show. She has devoted her entire career not just to researching and writing a progressive Southern history, but to the possibilities that the South's racial past offers for a nation where political equality is still unrealized. The author of an award-winning 1979 book about Jesse Daniel Ames, Hall is also famous for her co-authored work on the South's mill towns. Today we are talking about her most recent book, Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America which tells the story of three sisters, women from the slave-holding Lumpkin family of Georgia. Each woman represents a way that Southern women engaged with history in the 20th century. Elizabeth became a proud conservative partisan who traveled the post-Reconstruction South, giving speeches memorializing the lost cause. Grace became a writer, a Greenwich Village Bohemian, and a communist fellow traveler. And Catherine, the youngest, who devoted her life to liberal causes that exposed the propaganda that kept black Southerners in bondage long after slavery. Join Jacqueline and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 32, The Courtroom of History. Jacqueline Hall, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So, Jacqueline, your book, Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America, is a biography of three women in the same family. Can you tell our listeners what story this book tells? Well, the story starts in the late 19th century with a glance back to slavery and then sweeps through the 20th century up to the beginnings of the uh, modern women's movement and the civil through the civil rights movement. And it looks at that, that history through the point of view of these three sisters. These sisters were very different from one another, and their differences uh, allowed me to look at so many different aspects of American history that I couldn't have encompassed if I was writing a biography of one person. But at the same time, they were all three struggling with the same legacy. And in that sense, lived what I kind of think of as parallel lives, very, very different from each other, often not even in contact with each other, And yet, because of the weight of history and the way they were 
in some ways vying with one another for imaginative dominance. Who is going to define this history? Do you remember Phyllis Rose's wonderful book of literary criticism in the 80s at Parallel Lives? It was about married couples. But I think that siblings sometimes live those kinds of lives too. The oldest uh, of these sisters was a quite famous orator for the lost cause at the turn of the 19th century. She stayed in the South her whole life. She was her father's daughter to the end. And in that sense, she allowed me to look at the kind of women, which are very much on our minds today, who were substantial people in their own right, accomplished in her own way, but, or and, at the same time, upheld white supremacy and were devoted to upholding white supremacy. The middle sister, Grace Lumpkin, became a radical novelist in the 1920s, very well known for her time. Her first novel and most successful one was seen as a kind of inaugural effort in that whole genre. She ended up as an expatriate from the South. She lived in the East Village, was living with a man, a working class man from Eastern Europe who was a firm leather worker, a very radical unionist who had literary aspirations of his own, scandalized her family, of course, by doing this, and went on to be involved in a whole series of the radical causes of the 20s and 30s, and then ended up making a sharp right turn, a complete change of course in the 40s and becoming a Christian nationalist, a McCarthyite, a very, very adamant segregationist and anti-communist. So there you have, among other things, a right turn that a number of really influential leftists from the Depression era made with great consequences. And then the youngest sister, Catherine Lumpkin, who is the moral center of the book, and I started out this book to write just about her. She also left the South and spent most of her life outside the South. I should say that both of these sisters in the the end of their lives came back to the South and very deliberately so. Catherine was in New York in the 20s, went to graduate school at Columbia, where I also went to graduate school. Some of the things she says about being a Southerner at Columbia in the 20s seemed familiar to me from the 60s. Ended up then coming back to the South and heading up an interracial student movement under the auspices of the YWCA. Very little known, if at all, but very, to me, interesting and an 
in, very interesting forerunner of the student movements of my own generation. She left the South again and ended up getting a PhD in sociology and living most of her adult life in a committed partnership with a woman radical economist at Smith College named Dorothy Douglas, who had had four children, was the former wife of Paul Douglas, a very prominent Democratic senator at the time. And then she she's best known for writing uh, an autobiography called The Making of a Southerner, which came out of the civil rights ferment of the World War II period. So I see her and her life is very much an example of something that I've written about elsewhere, which is the long civil rights movement and how in its roots in the 1940s. And in that autobiography, her goal was to show other white Southerners how she had absorbed in a way that most white Southerners did, but magnified by many degrees because of her father's utter commitment and powerful indoctrination of these children, of these daughters, how she had absorbed that, and then how she worked through that and was able to change her own consciousness and to make other changes and to identify with a different history, all of which was very fascinating to me as a way of thinking about and bringing about social change and about the importance of persuasion and about the goal, which the early civil rights movement of our generation also had, of changing the hearts and minds of white Southerners. She believed that that could be done in a way that became much less easy to believe once massive resistance began after the Brown decision. So I followed these sisters from their childhoods, from their family that they grew up in, into their old age, which was a choice that some people might not have made, but that I really wanted to do. I mean, we often see that is just, okay, now their story is over. But from my vantage point (laughs) in life, (laughs) I don't really see it that way anymore. And so, and plus, I had very rich sources for writing about how they kind of came back together in contested and difficult ways in that last period of their lives. Well, and this book came out of your work in the Southern Oral History Collection, right? And and I'd like to give a little plug for that project. Could you describe to our listeners what the Southern Oral History Project has done, and then specifically how you crafted some of that material into this book? Yes. The Southern Oral History Program is, uh, this is its 50th anniversary, and This book comes directly out of that. I have to just tell a very brief origin story of of that program. I was living in Atlanta in the early 70s 
involved in a, a community of civil rights veterans, newly minted feminists, anti-war activists, and so on. And in working with a group called the Institute for Southern Studies, which came out of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, a group of us there had the idea for complicated reasons, I think, that we, our generation of Southerners, had suffered from a kind of historical amnesia from a sense that we were the first generation to notice that something was terribly wrong to try to change it. We set out to interview people from the 1930s who had done, of course, the exact same thing in their own generation. And so that was my introduction to oral history. And my interest in it came out of that and out of being part of the generation that was kind of inventing social history, history from the bottom up and so on. Well, it happened that at that same moment at UNC, some people in the history department decided that it's not that there were no oral history programs at Southern universities, but the major oral history programs were not in the South. And they thought UNC should be a place where the storytelling and documentation through storytelling of Southern history could and should take place. But their idea of what this program should be was a very much, very much of a top down program interviewing the elites, interviewing powerful men. Nevertheless, they hired me to... That was their mistake. That was their big mistake. (laughs) And for a long time, I thought it was my mistake, too, to start this program. I mean, basically, you know, they gave me an office with a typewriter in it and said, start an oral history program and teach in the history department. So I launched this program. And one of the very first things that I did, I got a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. My idea of how to thread this needle was that we need histories of the powerful and we need histories of the powerless. It's not either or. So I used part of this grant to do a project on Southern politics since the Brown decision. And we interviewed people like the young Bill Clinton running for office for the first time, running for Congress and getting defeated in Arkansas. So we did that. And then we did another project that I called Southern Women After Suffrage. And the idea was to interview women in the South who had been active once they got the vote. And two of the women that I interviewed in 1974 were Grace Lumpkin and Catherine Lumpkin. And those were really very memorable interviews. And I continued to be interested in them, but I went on and did a whole lot of other things. I kept up with Catherine and thought about them and sort of collected little bits of information about them as I went along. So at a certain point, I began to think in earnest about 
actually writing a book about these women. And when I did, those interviews became kind of the centerpiece of the book. They were just one small piece of the evidence that I used. But I found myself over the whole long period in which I gradually sort of pulled at all the different threads that these women's stories allowed me to pull on. I kept going back to the interviews and rereading them and seeing different things in them, including the silences in them and interrogating why they were willing to talk about some things and not other things. So in that sense, this program that I was running and this book that gradually, gradually emerged were connected at the hip. (laughs) And I hope if there are any graduate students in our listening audience that they really pay attention to this story, that when you grab onto something and you can't let it go, it is a book, no matter how long it takes. (laughs) No matter... And no matter how much you resist, yes, yes, I resisted very hard. <laughs> you wrote other books in between. You wrote great articles. So I want to get back to these women uh, who are just a an amazing troika. Um, Elizabeth Lumpkin, who's the white supremacist, Um, Grace Lumpkin, who's a communist. She even ends up living in a communal household with Whitaker Chambers. And Catherine, who is involved in a very long struggle. She's an interracialist and she is liberal and she is actually doing the work on the ground of confronting white supremacy. How did three such very, very different women come out of the same family? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I think that paradoxically, all three of them took from this upbringing that they had, an upbringing in which they were expected to have a mission in life. They were girls. There were boys in the family. The boys were, you know, had different expectations. But the mission that they had was to be part of history, to uphold the cult of the lost cause, defend the South's cause in the courtroom of history, and to uphold what they were clearly led led to understand was the centerpiece of the South's identity, which was white supremacy, the eternal supremacy of white people over black people. This was at the core. They were raised to think that they had a role to play in this narrative war that was going on between that version of history and what was seen as a kind of abolitionist version of history or a northern version of history. And toxic as that upbringing was, it was also gave them a sense of self and of being somebody in the world and somebody who could have an impact on the culture of their times. So I think that's something they had in common. Elizabeth was a good deal older than the other sisters. 
So that makes a big difference. She was her father's daughter and his favorite long before these younger siblings were even born. And even after they were born, that was the case. So, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for the oldest child in that sense to be the loyalist, the true believer, and children to be more rebellious. And if I can just stop you there for a second, I wonder if you would describe for our listeners these speeches that Elizabeth gave, because she plays a particular role in public life that is really assigned to white women. So could you could you talk about these speeches a little bit? She traveled around with her father as kind of her manager on the Confederate Veterans Reunion Circuit. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, <laughs> but take it from me. These were big civic events in small towns, big cities. They were front page news. It was the circus come to town. The veterans would come from, you know, from all over the South to the big ones, and they would gather for three or four days. They would have reenactments of the Civil War. Their father was acted in these reenactments, parades, and sort of like prom queens. You know, there would be the beautiful young white women on the floats. And then these aging Confederate veterans marching, you know, down the street. And the role of these daughters of the Confederacy was to uphold this idea, not only of white supremacy, but of patriarchy, and to keep alive the memory of these brave soldiers. And Elizabeth uh, had her debut at one of these big reunion in Columbia, South Carolina, where they were living at the time. And I have all of these speeches of hers because they were printed in the newspapers, among other things. And she would hold forth on how others might forget, as time went on, more and more, shall we say, doddering veterans. (laughs) Wearing their little gray hats. and Beautiful, virginal young women love you and, and honor you and look up to you. So this wasn't explicitly part of their rhetoric, but it was very much a parallel of the pure white woman that white Southern men were supposed to be protecting and particularly protecting from black men. So there was, that was the, that was a subtext. And Grace, who becomes a communist How does she get there from a Southern background where communism was maybe being talked about in labor unions, in the, in the mills that you've also written about, but not among women of her social class. So how does she get to that? Well, let me say that according to Grace, and I think this is true, she wasn't a member of the communist party. She describes herself as a warm fellow traveler. And (laughs) one of the reasons that she wasn't 
was the sectarianism of the Communist Party at this time that she entered into it in the 20s. The Communist Party was nothing like it became in the 30s and 40s during the Popular Front. It was a very fraught and insular and factionalized group of people. And her husband, who she later married, this lover of hers, he was a member of a faction that was on the outs with the Communist Party per se. He was a communist, but of a you know, the Lovestone faction. So that made it difficult for her. She ran in communist circles, but was a little bit suspect. I think that's part of it. She did not become a communist or be, was not even, I mean, become a part of the communist movement. I'll, I'll put it that way. While she was in the South, she went to New York because she had ambitions to become a writer. And that's what you did. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were an ambitious Southern woman who wanted to be a writer and had the nerve, you went to New York to try to do that, it preferably to Greenwich Village. And it was there that she met and got involved with these young communists. Initially, through the Sacco Vanzetti trials, which she was active in, and she met Whitaker Chambers at that time, who becomes, as you know, you know, maybe the the best known anti-communist of of his time, but at this time was a very committed, you know, fiery young communist. He and the man that she went on to marry were best friends, and she and her roommate who marries Whitaker Chambers. So they became this foursome. So she, in later life, by the time I met her in the 70s, her whole thing, her whole explanation for herself was that she had been led astray by all these smart, young New York communists. And also she claimed to have been led astray by Catherine, who was more, and always was in a way, more sophisticated politically than Grace was. I don't buy that in in that sense of other people made me do it. And in order to counter that explanation, I spent a lot of time trying to dig up exactly what kinds of experiences she had in New York and how the degree to which she was making choices and was inventing herself and creating her own life. And the persona that she invented for herself, and I don't use invented in a pejorative sense, was the persona of a exotic person who could speak for the South and about the South from a position of deep knowledge, from a position of growing up in a slave-owning family, which she had. And so that made her into a kind of, the kind of fascinating person that she wanted to be. So she wasn't just there mimicking these people that she met. She was being influenced, as we all are, 
by the people that we develop deep relationships with and by the context that we're in. But she was also drawing on the materials of her life, including her experiences in the South, to create the persona that she ended up with. Okay, so we have Elizabeth and Grace, both of whom seem to have a talent for becoming the center of attention and doing that in a very political way. And then we've got Catherine, who is a subtler character. She's constantly seeking out education. She's constantly seeking out new experiences and challenging herself. In some ways, her life seems the toughest of all the sisters because she's constantly coming up against the racial order in the South and having to make decisions about how she is going to realize her progressive ideals. Can you talk about Catherine a little bit? I think you're right about the difficulty. I was very interested, as I said earlier, in this interracial student group that she was leading in the early 20s and in trying to understand the relationships between the black women who were involved in this and the white women who were involved in it. And you have to remember that this was a period in which they couldn't even find any place to meet together. This was at the very depths of segregation, of legal segregation in the South. But even a bigger barrier or challenge is that they had no models for relating to one another on a basis of equality. And they were very self-conscious about trying to learn to do that and to forge a new kind of relationship between women, young women across the racial line. So that was obviously very challenging. It had external challenges and internal challenges. So you talked about her search for education and understanding and an understanding of of history, which was more or less self-taught in the sense that she studied labor economics and sociology at the University of Wisconsin and sociology at Columbia as a master's student, but taught herself at Southern history. So she and her partner, Dorothy Douglas, aspired to be intellectuals, activist intellectuals, to have intellectual careers, intellectual lives at a period when the barriers to women having lives like that were soul-crushing. They couldn't get jobs in the universities. Even the women's schools, which they were able to get a toehold in, by the time Catherine had left the South and was trying to get a teaching job, by by the Depression era, Men who were desperate for jobs, too, were crowding women out of the women's colleges. So, you know, they couldn't get a job at Harvard, but they got the jobs at Smith or Radcliffe or whatever. So Catherine ended up, her whole adult career, really, 
creating alternative institutions, institutions that she and Dorothy together would carve out as kind of on the margins of Smith College, the official institution that they were part of, and trying to use those as a space in which to have this kind of a life. So that was a a challenge. And in the end, Dorothy and Catherine's work becomes too radical for Smith. I mean, they really end up in the crosshairs of the McCarthy Committee, while Old Grace is sitting in a room somewhere testifying. This is a kind of ironic convergence here. Can you talk about what happens to Catherine and Dorothy? Because I think it's a really important story about how a certain kind of progressive interracialism gets shut down in the 1950s. Yes, that's exactly right. The 40s were a very hopeful period for them. Yet by the late 40s, there were already the forces of anti-communism were starting to cohere. Catherine, as the 50s dawned, was trying to write a book that she was very intent upon. It was a historical novel with a black man as the protagonist, as the hero, set during Reconstruction. And she got a really good contract. She got a fellowship. It was looked like, you know, this was her time. And she was on the strength of her autobiography. She was able to do this. Dorothy, meanwhile, was teaching in the economics department and very involved as an activist in trying to push the New Deal to the left as a kind of policy maker without portfolio and also in the local labor movement in that part of Massachusetts. They, like many, many other leftists, they thought they were happily going about their business doing all of this. They were also being spied upon by the FBI. FBI agents were going through their trash, were questioning their friends, were bugging their telephones, probably unbeknownst to them. But of course, sort of poisoning the atmosphere around them. And then Smith College itself came in the crosshairs. And the college was being accused of harboring radicals. And Smith has prided itself on the way it stood up against McCarthyism, but it prided itself more than it really should have. It didn't outright fire people the way some places did, but neither did it protect them. And it did things behind the scenes that have only come out in historical research. So Basically, Dorothy was one of the radicals that Smith College was getting in trouble for. And she was one that Smith was willing to sort of sacrifice. And I don't think she was fired. I think she was given to know that she should resign and not be humiliated. And the two of them were planning to go to Europe on a research trip on a sabbatical 
and they left for that trip and they just didn't come back. And I searched and searched in the Smith College papers for a smoking gun of exactly what made Dorothy make that decision. And I found enough to make me feel that my version that I just gave you is is true, but not anything really in writing. Catherine, on the other hand, kept on trying to write this book, but she ended up being victimized in two ways. Once they did come back to the States, she and Dorothy both started looking for jobs because Catherine didn't have tenure at Smith. She was running this program, which they shut down. So right. they were you know, on the job market during the McCarthy era and they couldn't get jobs. But also there was a sea change in the cultural climate such that the interest in the kind of book she was trying to write evaporated. And she just ran up against editors who wanted her to write a very different book with a different message that she wasn't willing to do. So she never published that book. One of the things I loved about this book is it took me back to a conversation we had decades ago about how Southern history isn't really Southern history. It's it's the history of this nation. And I think the three Lumpkin sisters in their travels, in what they embrace, in what they reject, point to the importance of Southern history in understanding our dilemmas today. So can you tell our listeners why they should read this book now? Well, you've drawn attention to one of the reasons that I think they should read it. And I remember this conversation you're talking about very well. (laughs) They should read it to get a different view of the South than the conventional view. The South's cultural impact and political impact goes far beyond the geographical boundaries of the South. You can't ignore the South and write off the South politically, for example, and think you're going to change the country or move the country in a progressive direction. This book is in part about the Southern diaspora, the diaspora of ideas and people. So much of what we think of, say, even as Southern literature, really is a matter of Southern expatriates with the South in their heart, but living elsewhere in other contexts looking back and writing about the South. And that's what these women did. So in that sense, the South has an impact that goes far beyond the old Confederacy. Another way in which you might think about the South differently is that the South has played a particular role in the American imagination. And the role that it's played is as a kind of repository for racism and backwardness. So America is innocent and great and victorious. The South is where we put all the defeat and the poverty and the failure, and as I said, the the racism. And that is a really, really self-defeating way of looking at those issues. It's not true, and it gives a false sense of what America is, 
And one of the big goals that Catherine in particular had, and Grace too in her younger and better days, was to oppose the idea of a monolithic South and to bring forward a story of the progressive South, a story of different kinds of feminism in the South. And in Catherine's case, she she writes about this in a way that I found very brilliant and touching in her autobiography. She goes through this whole process of things that happened to her from childhood on that made her begin to see the South in a different way. But in the end, as long as she still believed in the unique monolithic South, then she felt that to be critical of the South, to be a different kind of Southerner, was to betray the South, not to be a Southerner, that she had to say, you know, had to reject her own family and her own past. And it was when she began to learn about a more complicated Southern history, a Southern history that was not monolithic, that she was able to both affirm herself and her identity and her history and to be a person of the world and of of the country. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.